Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Institute of World Politics Pearl Harbor Lecture. Uh, my understanding is that this is the 23rd lecture. I'm a Professor Gemma Puglisi, and I teach at American University. Uh, and it's wonderful for me to be here at the Institute of World Politics. A shout out to my wonderful brother-in-law, uh, Dr. Tierney, who uh, mentioned the series happens every year and the wonderful people that you have had here at the Institute of World Politics. I'll speak later. Uh, including uh, Secretary of Defenses, uh, including heads of the CIA, the FBI, heads of National Security Councils. So um, I'm so honored and proud that Diane Foley has come here today to speak to all of you because she's an extraordinary woman. Uh, I know that there's a, a write-up about her. She's a mom of five children, including the incredible journalist, American journalist, um, uh, James W. Foley, who uh, was killed in 2014 by ISIS. Jim was an extraordinary journalist, and I worked at NBC News for many years, so I know the work, the passion that he had as a journalist, covering stories in war-torn areas, risking his life. Being a freelancer, not, I'm sure not making much money with very little benefits. And uh, my thanks to my dear friend Marcy Paulus, who introduced, uh, Marcy, thank you, introduced um, Diane Foley to me. I teach a, a class at American University called Public Relations Portfolio, and in that class we work with real clients and we do things like media, research, um, events, public relations, and marketing. And uh, when I had heard um, what had happened um, to Jim Foley, I immediately reached out to Marcy and said, do you think that Diane Foley would want to work with my class and we want to help her because Marcy had said she had just started a foundation in honor of her son Jim to raise awareness about hostages, the ordeal that families go through, and uh, trying to help them with very little information, as well as the role of journalists who cover stories that are really important and provide information to us here. Um, I'm so honored that Diane is here, and you're so lucky to have her here. What I know about Diane, more importantly than anything, is she's an amazing communicator. And um, when we were working with her many years ago at American University, uh, and unbeknownst to me, she was actually flying back and forth talking to other hostage families as well as the White House during President Obama's administration. And um, it was incredible, her work. Uh, I'll never forget the day I saw it. It was on NBC News, and President Obama was at the White House. And he quoted Diane Foley and said, we can do better as a country by protecting loved ones who are being held hostage. And he then implemented this new um, law, which is the Presidential Policy Directive. Is that at 30? Where he said... Families can do whatever they need to do to get their loved ones home, but we as a country will still not negotiate with hostages. And that was all because the woman sitting here. I'm extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily honored that she is here to be with all of you. Please welcome the amazing Diane Foley. And also, just so that you know, the foundation does incredible work. If you are interested in donating, 
please look at their website at www.jamesfoley.foundation.org. They do, again, great work educating young people as yourselves of what it's like to go out and cover the news, cover stories, protecting journalists' right, freedom of speech. Thank you all so much for being here today. Here's Danielle Foley. Thank you. Um, moral courage. I didn't know that Jim aspired to moral courage, but I've come to really recognize how important moral courage is in all facets of life. And it certainly is here at the Institute of World Politics, because you are the future. Either your faculty who is um, teaching to the future or students who will be our future in many ways. I'm particularly honored to be here because the Institute of World Politics does mold it, um, our leaders. I'm also very grateful to notice that your mission statement and objectives, and I'm going to quote it here, it says, to create moral leaders with a dedication to the pursuit of the truth, the ethical use of national power, and the development of personal and civic virtues. I just think that is essential. It's essential for our freedom, and it's essential as we continue to take our position as a leader in the free world. I, I want to remind you that I'm a retired family nurse practitioner, mother of five, and certainly not an expert um, on U.S. policy or government. I'm merely here to share my story so that you and our country might learn from it. Also, to emphasize the moral courage aspect and to answer your questions, hopefully, I will try. I want to tell you a bit about, have any of you seen the documentary, Jim, the James Foley story? A couple of you have. Okay. So I will tell you a little bit about our story. Um, our oldest son was James Wright Foley, an American journalist, a freelancer, who was, can you hear me fine in the back? Who was kidnapped in 2012 and publicly beheaded in 2014 by ISIS. But what does that brutal murder in the fall of 2014 have to do with the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Well, in both cases, an enemy found a vulnerable target and a way to inflict horrific pain on our country, our nation, and totally surprised us. In both cases, the victims were innocent Americans doing their jobs. And I've come to realize that how the United States responds to such attacks is critical. We must not stoop to immoral solutions, such as the CIA torture program that was enacted after 9-11 attacks, or the deployment of our nuclear arsenal to annihilate a people. I feel it is essential that we aspire to moral courage in the methods we choose to defend our nation and protect our citizens. Jim was the oldest of five children. He was 15 years older than our youngest. And though he was dearly loved, I really knew little of his humanity, courage, or talent until after he was killed. Jim grew up in a beautiful little town on Lake Winnipesaukee in rural New Hampshire, 
grew up in um, the Catholic Church, was even an altar boy, but was not particularly religious. He chose to attend Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, because it had a strong liberal arts program, and probably because it was far away from our noisy household. <laughs> Marquette's motto was, be the difference. Jim was encouraged from the time he was a freshman to tutor in the inner city schools at Marquette. I really believe it was in the, in the midst of that inner city tutoring that his eyes were first open to the poverty and injustice within our own country for the first time. Upon graduation, Jim chose to go to teach for, into Teach for America in the inner city of Phoenix, where he could use his fluent um, Spanish. Um, but eventually, because Jim was a voracious reader, interested writer, also because he was very interested in, in um, he thought a lot about our democracy and the freedoms we have as Americans. It really wasn't surprising that eventually he chose to become a journalist. He had always been a good listener and writer with a passion for the truth, always interested in someone else's story. And he believed that an informed citizenry was essential to our freedom and our democracy. I think partly because his three younger siblings were all serving in the U.S. military, Jim chose to become a conflict reporter. He initially went to Iraq, embedded with the Indiana National Guard and working with U.S. aid in Baghdad. He further honed his reporting skills, embedded with the U.S. Army 101st in Afghanistan. So it was as a more seasoned reporter that Jim chose to um, become a freelancer amid the Arab Spring in 2011. I had been so worried about his three younger siblings in the Army, Air Force, and Navy, but was totally ignorant to the higher risk of being a freelance reporter in a conflict zone. Jim had taken various safety courses and learned a lot from his time in the military and was doing all he knew to keep safe. But um, he was targeted and kidnapped twice while working as a freelance conflict journalist in the Middle East. Years ago in World War II, both sides of any conflict really needed journalists to get out the news. But these days, with one's own camera and such, journalists were, have been increasingly targeted because they may not be telling the truth that a certain side of a conflict wants to hear. So his first kidnapping was in Libya by Gaddafi forces in March of 2011. This first kidnapping only lasted 44 days, but its horror and feeling of powerlessness opened my eyes to a suffering I had not previously known. His kidnapping occurred as he was reporting from Benghazi, Libya. One morning, he and three colleagues were traveling together to the front lines of the conflict, and their car was stopped at a gunpoint. One colleague instantly killed, while Jim and the two others were kidnapped. Luckily, that kidnapping was witnessed by a New York Times reporter and who identified the captors as Gaddafi's soldiers. Kidnappings are often unwitnessed, 
making the identification of captors and the location of hostages incredibly difficult. I think it's important to note, too, that Jim, because Jim was a freelancer, that is an independent journalist, not a staff reporter, he didn't have a security team to help him. He didn't have the um, entourage that often goes with staff reporters to protect them in these situations. Um, didn't have access to medical insurance, to um, a budget to stay in a safe place, have safe fixer and such in country. He did miraculously return from Libya, but he felt called to return to the Middle East. He had experienced the Arab struggle for freedom and really felt compelled to tell their stories so that we Americans could understand and help. I also know he came to know how precious our American freedoms are, freedoms that all of us can so easily take for granted. Jim was home for one final wonderful Christmas um, in 2011, and then back to the Middle East by the new year. Um, since the Arab hopes for freedom had spread to Syria, he decided to enter through the northern Syrian border, just across Turkey. He worked in Syria throughout 2012, um, just returning a couple of times, once in May for a fundraiser for his foreign colleague, Anton Hamrell's children, and then again in October of 2012. We celebrated his 39th birthday um, that October, and several of his friends really argued with him not to return to Syria. John and I, my husband, added our concerns to, for his safety. But he told me, Mom, I found my passion, and I must return. The last day I heard Jim's voice was on a brief phone call while I was at work. He reassured me he'd be home for Christmas, but I never heard his voice again. When John and I did not receive a call on Thanksgiving Day um, in 2012, we were worried because it was very odd for Jim not to call on the holidays. And that feeling of foreboding was confirmed the next morning when we received a call from Jim's colleague informing us that Jim had been kidnapped at gunpoint just a few miles from the Turkish border. We were in shock. How could this be happening again? And we truly didn't know where to turn. Um, I didn't know Washington at all. We just had no idea what, we, what to do. Um, U.S. Consular Affairs called us to confirm Jim's capture. She informed us that FBI would be the lead in this investigation because um, the captors were unknown and to expect a visit within the next week. An FBI agent did come to our home, and he was very nice, but seemed totally unprepared for the assignment. While speaking to us, he asked if we had considered asking President Assad for assistance. He did not speak Arabic, nor had he ever been to Turkey or Syria, didn't ask for Jim's cell phone number. It was three long weeks after his capture when the agent finally made it to the Turkish border trying to make sense of all the rumors and conflicting leads. But Jim had vanished by then. There was absolutely no trace of him. FBI urged us not to tell anyone about the capture, telling us it would be protective um, of Jim. And, you know, we were trying to be calm and trust that Jim 
would soon be brought home. But inside, we were overcome with terror and horrific anxiety. We obediently went through Christmas telling no one but family that Jim had been kidnapped. But by the new year, we decided we had to ask for help from the media. The FBI in Boston sent two agents to advise us and support us, and we finally um, did start to use the media that spring of 2013 in hopes that some journalist in country or somebody would give us a hint about whether Jim was even alive, and if so, where might he be in Syria? Both times that Jim was taken hostage, we did as I say, we did not know where to get help. My husband, we're an ordinary middle-class family. My husband, a physician, I, um, a family nurse practitioner. No understanding about journalism, hostage-taking, none of it. And aside from our, from our friends and family, we felt really totally alone. And never knew, for example, that three other family, American families, were also going through this at the same time. We were never told that um, Jim was part of um, three other Americans taken by the same group. Anyway, in that 2013, I decided I must quit my job. I mean, it was just, you know, we were hearing absolutely nothing. So I began trips here to Washington. Um, our FBI agent seldom called, and when he did, he just wanted to debrief us. He wanted to know what we knew, and we never, he never was able to tell us anything. Um, one of Jim's out, news outlets, Global Post, did convince his insurance to offer our security team help, um, which was encouraging to us, but that worked, that security team worked for the media outlet, not for us. So in many ways, we were very much on our own. But the months went by with no sign of Jim at all, absolutely none. I would come here going from the State Department to the FBI, um, to various ambassadors, particularly the Turkish ambassador, and then the United Nations in New York begging for help. Just reminding anyone who would listen that Jim was still missing. And I was repeatedly told that Jim was their highest priority. I would come down here and scour the internet, trying to find the cheapest place to stay and ways to travel. Uh, I tried to figure out where everything was and it just had some crazy um, uh, adventures down here. One time, I, there was, were two times I was received at the White House by Susan Rice, whom I had met as a UN ambassador. Um, she was very cordial and empathetic, again repeating the refrain that Jim was the highest priority. But then she would refer me back to FBI and State Department. And soon I was going around in circles with no one taking responsibility to help bring Jim home. Finally, in the fall of 2013, about 10 months after Jim's kidnapping, we received word from two strangers that Jim was indeed alive. Both of these good men contacted us from Europe, confirming his detention with other Westerners. This new information offered such renewed hope. These men had very detailed information about where Jim was being held. And, of course, everything was shared with the FBI and the security team. 
So from September of 2013, our government knew exactly where these um, our citizens were. At the end of November, also, our son Michael received the first email from the captors, providing proof of life to the questions um, we provided. Every question was answered perfectly, and we just knew that they had Jim. Um, however, they demanded that we release all Muslim prisoners that our country had in custody, or a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand euros in exchange for Jim's life, all of which was impossible for us as a family. And our FBI was not allowed to engage with the captors at all. That was we had to engage with them as best we could. So we tried. You know, they t the FBI told us to just be yourselves, tell them the truth. The, you can't do these things. They're asking. Um, and this is the beginning of a very long negotiation. Well, the kidnappers stopped communicating within 30 days. And we never heard from them again until a few weeks before Jim's murder. But starting at the, in the new year, in 2014, in February, some of the other hostages were released. It began with the Spanish hostages. And from them, there were three Spanish hostages who were released in February of 2014. And from them, we learned that Jim had been held with 17 other Western hostages, all our allies. Each of the other countries had chosen to negotiate separately for their citizens. First the Spanish, then the French, and then the Italians, all negotiated with the terrorists holding their citizens and were able to negotiate their release. The Danish government also supported the Danish family in its negotiation. But President Obama and the Prime Minister Thatcher were convinced that the best way to stop terrorism was to deny material support to them, that is to deny ransom payments for our citizens, which of course none of us want to fund terrorism. But I didn't realize that that he was president. Our president was feeling very strongly about that, and thus he would not allow anyone in our government to even engage on behalf of the hostages. So the reality is, though our American citizens never had a chance of coming home, because no one was allowed to even talk to the captors from the government. So there was no, no opportunity for any type of negotiation. It was actually David Bradley, uh, some of you may know him, the, the, the former owner of The Atlantic, who helped us find out that Jim was being held with three other Americans. David was the one who helped us contact the other American families and arrange joint meetings with the FBI, State Department, and the White House in that spring of 2014. During those meetings was the very first time we were threatened with criminal prosecution if we dared to raise a ransom for the Jim's return. And they told us clearly there would be absolutely no rescue done and, if, and that nor would the government attempt any negotiation through a third country. 
This, um, these threats were repeated three times to our families. Um, they made it very clear that um, it was just appalling to me. A, a part of it was the tone, it was the threats, you know, it was, yeah. Um, I was just so saddened, so taken back that our government would threaten their own citizens. But undeterred, because Jim had been held the longest, and I had already talked to um, attorneys who assured me that there was no precedent for prosecuting a family trying to secure the release of their loved one. But we were very concerned about prosecution of any donors to, you know, a potential ransom. It became increasingly obvious that the return of Jim and the other Americans was not a national priority. So we embarked on raising pledges for a potential ransom for Jim's life. But it was really too late. Um, we really had trusted the government too long, if you will. Um, we realized we were on our own really very, just a few months before Jim was murdered. Um, in the spring of, let's see, after, I guess, let me back up a bit. A bit earlier, in the um, middle of 2014, when the French um, journalists were released, that was probably the last opportunity for rescue um, of our four Americans and the three British hostages. Because the French hostages came out with very detailed information and communication. It was kind of like the last time the captors <coughs> tried to see if they could get our government to um, negotiate at all. But to, um, none of that information was acted on, to my knowledge. One of the freed Italian hostages even visited the United States twice at his own expense, trying to get help for Jim and the other Americans and British only to have his essential detailed information received at the lowest level meetings with an FBI agent here in Washington. Um, they received no attention at all. Um, you know, in 2014, there was no interagency work on behalf of Americans kidnapped abroad. So multiple opportunities to bring our Americans home were lost. And these Americans were essentially abandoned, left to be used as propaganda for ISIS. After returning home from my second trip to Europe in 2014, I was always trying to talk to the French and the, the British and just trying to, to get information, but also trying to see if there was any possibility of us working together to bring people out because I thought we'd be stronger together. But um, I, I was just exhausted with travel and fear. I remember falling on my knees one night in prayer and really surrendering Jim to God. It was two weeks later that Jim was brutally and publicly beheaded for being an American journalist and a Christian. Though we'd been warned in a captor email, I was just in shock, in such total disbelief. As the reality sunk in, I just felt a real surge of anger, you know, at ISIS, but also at our government and others who had refused to help. I felt such a bitterness rising up in me that I struggled to catch my breath and to accept what had just happened. But it is, was sadly after Jim's execution that John and I began to understand all the many lives that Jim had touched 
And this is when we began to understand the moral courage that he had aspired to and that make our country truly great. This is when we realized that Jim was handing over his commitment to fighting for injustice and oppression through a free press and democracy to us to carry on. That's why within three weeks of his murder, we established the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation to advocate for the freedom for all Americans taken hostage abroad and for journalist safety worldwide. Jim's death opened the doors at the White House, enabling us to make the return of American hostages more of a priority. After the four Americans were murdered, President Obama ordered the National Counterterrorism Center to conduct an all-of-government and non-government review of how the U.S. handles situations when innocent Americans are kidnapped abroad. This review identified serious disorganization and lack of coordination, which had led to the deaths. And thus, in June of 2015, President Obama did uh, issue the Presidential Policy Directive 30, which Gemma alluded to, to improve our government interagency efforts on behalf of Americans taken hostage abroad. That directive established a hostage recovery fusion cell, which is totally interagency. All of our intelligence agencies working with our FBI and the State Department, uh, working together military, as well as a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs to work on more of the diplomatic side, and a hostage recovery group at the White House, whose only mission is to bring Americans home. Thankfully, President Trump has continued that presidential directive, policy directive, and since that date, many more Americans have, have come home. In terms of preventative safety, we also helped work with journalists to start an alliance for a culture of safety and to develop two curriculum for two curricula on journalist safety. Because I feel it's very important that any um, students aspiring to international travel and work really know how to keep themselves safe. And particularly if they're working as a freelancer abroad or traveling alone abroad. I think it's essential that Americans recognize that, that in many ways we are targets abroad and that we need to be abroad in many ways. I think it, it's essential that we're out there, but we must know how to protect ourselves. We, it, within this curriculum, we use Jim the James Foley story to promote awareness and discussion about safety in working around the world, too. After Jim's murder, thousands of people, really from all over the world, offered donations, literally. We received donations from all over the world, and that's partly what gave us the impetus to start a foundation, because people were telling us to do something, do something good. And there has been progress on the issue of hostage-taking since um, these recent assaults on our innocent citizens. But I have discovered, we have discovered in this work, that Jim and the other four Americans were just the tip of the iceberg. 
that in fact there are hundreds of Americans, innocent Americans, who are kidnapped or unjustly detained annually, every year. That this is, um, this is not a small problem. That this is um, an issue that um, our government needs to be good at taking care of. I feel that our, our foundation is, um, ho I hope it to be a strong non-governmental advocate for innocent Americans taken hostage abroad. I feel that our government should have the backs of our brave Americans who dare to go out in the world, particularly on behalf of us, our citizens, you know, be it for humanitarian work or peace efforts or education. I feel we need to be out there. I mean, we have so much to offer the world. But I also feel our government needs to have our back, just as it does our brave military who go out to protect us in the world. You know, in many ways, Jim's captivity and, and um, execution may seem unrelatable, but the reality is that thousands of Americans travel internationally every year so that any of us who do that work could be one of the hundreds who are in this situation. I believe our, American, our government should make the return of innocent American hostages a national priority. We must be willing to be shrewd about um, ways to negotiate on their behalf. You know, it isn't all about ransom. You know, there are other ways to engage with um, people who take our citizens um, if we're shrewd about it. I also believe our hostage policy must prioritize the return of our citizens. And that our American sh shouldn't be lying to its citizens or threatening citizens in this situation. Um, I also feel there are a lot of times that our government cannot um, bring our citizens home. That many times it's a third party expert, someone who knows the country well, has ties on the ground, or pro bono um, uh, human rights attorneys who um, know about sanctions that can be appropriately applied, who can best help us. So I think it's vital that our government's willing to engage with these third party experts and work um, in a collaborative way to prioritize the return of our citizens. I also think preventative work, and that's why our safety curriculum is so important. I, I do feel that's important. But, you know, Jim challenges me as an American to care about others held captive around the world and to inspire our future leaders to be adults of moral courage and compassion. He would have wanted something, Jim would have wanted something positive to result from our de his death. So that's where I leave you with the challenge, to aspire to moral courage in whatever you do, whatever you choose to do. You know, we all have choices every day, right? Choices, you know, between the lazy thing, the easy thing, the default, or the, the thing that takes more time more courage, might risk looking weird or, you know, risk our status. It's hard to be a person of moral courage, but it's essential. 
we must start to make choices that really can show the world, remind the world what our values are. So I in, entreat all of you to use your education, your life's work to make our country a better place. You folks are truly the future. You have the power to change and to make these changes in the world. You know, it's hard. Our country has a, you know, it's just built on such goodness, right? Such bravery. You know, we have so much goodness in our country. But we're human, you know, and we've made mistakes. We really have. And a lot of people, a lot of those mistakes have caused a lot of hatred of us in the world. You know, so there are challenges. There are big challenges before us. So let me stop there. And um, I would love to hear your questions, and I'll do my best to answer. <laughs> particularly you students or, or professors or in interested citizens. I mean, it's complicated stuff. It's not. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. I was just wondering if you could do a little comparative analysis when the raid of Entebbe and the, the approach to Jim. Now, as I see the raid of Entebbe, the Israelis knew the Entebbe airport very well, okay? It was a, a national humiliation that their, their national airline was hijacked, so it was a higher priority than Jim's uh, situation. And, um, but, uh, but I'm wondering, uh, could you tell us how, um, how it compares you know, in, in terms of taking the Entebbe approach, you know, actually just sending a rescue force in there? Um, how, how, where, was anybody considering that? Uh, or or well, in, in, what, in what, what, what would prioritize that? But that's, that's a very good question, Russell. I think I think that's part of the problem. They, our, our government eventually did do a rescue mission, which I did not mention. They did, but it was so. It was after all the Western hostages were out, and of course they moved the British and the Americans because they were planning to kill them. So it was a risky mission for nothing. They did do a, a raid in July of 2014, which I never found out about. They never told us, you know. So they did attempt it then, but it was always much too late. But as far as comparing, you know, like I was trying to figure out how to compare it. I guess one of the things, I don't know enough about that situation that you mentioned, Russell. I was trying to compare more to, like, to Pearl Harbor, even though the enormity, or to 9-11. I think in all those situations that, that I know a bit more about, we were just surprised. We underestimated. We underestimated um, hatred. We underestimated how much our enemy wanted to find a vulnerable spot, a vulnerable target, be it the harbor of Pearl Harbor or a vulnerable journalist going in country. Oh, there's a good target, you know? I mean, I think a lot of times we, and we also, at least in the case with Jim, <coughs> is we underestimated how useful it could be to really try to get information and help find out where the Americans were, because we really would have had a much better understanding of ISIS had we really tried to follow this issue and really help those citizens get out, you know? 
But because we didn't allow any agents to engage with captors, we lost that opportunity. I mean, we, I mean, they had us families doing it. So, I mean, it was, um, I think at one point, President Obama, you know, I don't know if you remember, dubbed ISIS the JV team. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. But I think that just showed how much we underestimated. We didn't realize how much they hated us. You know, um, and how they were going to use our hostages for something. If we could, they couldn't get money from us. If they couldn't, if we wouldn't even um, stoop to negotiate, well, then we'll we'll use them as propaganda. I don't know if that helps, Russell. But I think there's similarities. I think we need to look at um, the, our history and and be vigilant and know, you know, and be willing to really. Uh, listen to all possible things coming in. I mean, even with Pearl Harbor, there were people within that administration who knew or knew of the Japanese possibly were considering an attack, but it was, you know, it was not considered, uh, I don't know if it was not considered a high priority, but it was not listened to. And I think similarly in the Obama administration, um, I certainly made as much noise as an individual citizen could. But, I mean, you know, ISIS was building in its strength, but it was underestimated. You know, it just wasn't um, followed closely enough, um, in my humble opinion. <laughs> you know, that's a good question, though. Yes, sir. Yeah, in your negotiation with the U.S. government, uh, what, with the other governments from France and Italy and so forth, getting release of their hostages, mm -hmm. What kind of evidence, argumentation, rationale were you ever offered for why the U.S. government and the British government took a totally different tack? What, what was the possible uh, explanation, if any, that was offered to you for them to do absolutely nothing? Did they have a, a history of it? Did they have an explanation? Some kind of rationale? Well, what, what's it, what's well our, our government never honestly talked to us about it at all. So there was absolutely no, no discussion about it, okay? I just kept hoping, you know, we kept feeding information to our government, and we assumed that they would be using that information to do what they do. I mean, they kept saying that Jim was the highest priority, right? And it was like kind of appalling, like, what's going on? They know where he is. They knew where he was nearly a year before he was killed, you know, and the other Americans were with him. But it was, but some of it was my ignorance, too. Is like I didn't realize that at that time President Obama was convinced that, that um, you know, material support to the terrorist group was, was hugely the the big reason for the funding of terror, and thus he refused to engage in any way with terrorist groups. So because of that issue, he just wouldn't allow any engagement at all, none, you know. And therefore, really, um, there was never any hope for the Americans or British because they had decided that that was that and and the rationale they used and it started with Reagan apparently was that paying ransom increases kidnapping 
And actually, that's part of one of the things the Foley Foundation has been doing is we've been doing and encouraging research on, is that true? Well, we found in general, it's not true that, you know, um, other citizens, you know, Americans are kidnapped about the same rate as other countries and that it's just that our results are worse. You know, Americans sometimes get home, but often uh, Americans are killed because of that policy, if you will. There's an interesting book. Have you read the book by um, Joel Simon, We Want to Negotiate? He is, um, Joel Simon is the um, executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. And I wasn't very happy with Joel because they didn't do much to help protect, help Jim, you know, when we needed help. And he felt bad about that, frankly. So he undertook this investigative um, uh, challenge and he went to the different hostages and their countries and discussed why they chose to negotiate and why we didn't. And he really found that a lot of the reason we didn't was based on a slogan that, you know, that um, assumed that more Americans would be taken hostage if we paid ransom, when in fact the research hasn't shown that. So, yes. How did your interactions with the U.S. government before and after the publicity of the event happen change? Or did you witness any change? Oh, huge change, really. I mean, it was like, after Jim was executed, all of a sudden, everyone was willing to talk to us. Yeah. They wouldn't talk to us at all before. Not at all. So it was hugely different. And that, though, has given us the opportunity to advocate on behalf of others. You know, it's dramatically changed. Yeah. Good question, though. Yes? Uh, do you still have contact with the other families? The other families who were with Jim? Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Because one of our issues now is trying to get some accountability. Part of um, President Obama's directive, uh, presidential directive, said that should anyone dare to attack and, and murder our citizens, that our government would seek accountability. But here it's been five years since Jim was killed. And we have yet to um, make that happen. I mean, two two of the jihadists who um, allegedly tortured, starved, uh, and helped um, kill them have been in custody since January of 2018. And they're now being held in Iraq, but they've yet to be extradited here and brought to trial. So we will work together on that and, and try to support each other. On the anniversaries, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yes, sir. Did you ever have a chance to uh, recover the remains of your son? Not at all. Not at all. And the reality is, Jim was just one of hundreds of thousands. I mean, the suffering in Syria is just beyond our imagination. And that's probably why I think Jim felt so committed. He was just hoping that the world would, you know, see. And, and that, gets back to, that gets back to the issue of moral courage. You know, do, as a government, do we care, you know, when things like this are happening, you know? Um, and it's hard. It's hard. It's, it, these are hard decisions. But they're moral decisions a lot of times. And we have to decide as a country, you know, um, do we care about life 
Do we care about the life of our own citizens? But how about the life of others, too, who are suffering um, dramatically? So, no. Um, they've looked. I mean, they've tried. It's not that they haven't. The FBI has tried. Um, some private investigators have had, are working to help us try to do that, too. But um, no, no success today. And that, that's very important for some of the families. For me, not so much. I think for me, I, I, um, I just would like to see our, our government start to, it's just really, uh, how can I say this in a nice way? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I think a lot of our, you know, politicians and our, and our public servants, if you will, do such great work. I mean, they truly do. But, but, but to me, the ones who really care, like Lacey there. Lacey's sitting way back hiding in the back seat. Lacey works at the National Counterterrorism um, Center, right? Now, she doesn't have to be at this lecture. Yeah, she doesn't have to be here. But she cares. And she's, she cares about, she's been at, at, at different events for Hostage U.S. That she's, you know, because I think it's important when you work in government to also see what's happening outside of government. See what the impact is on the people you serve. Like, what is the impact on, on the citizens, you know, on our people? You know, and there are people like Lacey and others of you who who care to think about that, who ponder that. That's essential. That's what's going to make you great. And that's what's going to make you really able to make a true difference, I think. I think it's essential. So. Any other questions? Yes. yes. Well, I was just wondering if um, the other families that were going through the same experience, before you guys found out about each other, was their experience with the government similar, or did any other stories differ with their dealing with that's a very good question. And actually, that was the topic of our research recently. We, we just did a report, the Foley Foundation did um, last June, to see how, how our government, how the hostage family experience has changed since the um, 2015 changes. But your question was more about the same families. Yeah. I mean, very similar. Very similar. They were very alone. They had no idea um, what was going on. As a matter of fact, to be honest, I think the Mueller family had even a more horrific situation because the captors really tried to negotiate for her life for a good four months. They didn't really, you know, they really hesitated to. I mean, with the men, they were, you know, a month was enough. You either engaged or not. But with um, our, the female American, for long months, they really tried to negotiate. And, and it's just so poignant for, for our, that family because we just wouldn't engage. And, um, and you know, she was raped and, and abused by al-Baghdadi in her last months of her life. It was just horrific. It's just awful stuff. You know? um, so that's, yeah, so, but certainly no better than our experience. Very similar. And that's partly what was so hard that none of us knew each other, that we could have at least been supporting each other. Yes, May I ask you, are you confident that things have changed? And if 
a journalist or someone else tomorrow gets kidnapped, are you confident that the U.S. government will act differently? That's quite a question. We are encouraged that now there are there are actually someone, some a group of of government officials whose job it is to bring Americans home. There, there wasn't anybody whose job it was um, when Jim was kidnapped. So that is a huge step forward because as an interagency effort, and the head of the fusion cell, um, Kieran Ramsey, is the best. I mean, he's just a wonderful um, gentleman. Um, and so um, our executive director, Margo Ewan, is here in the audience, and, and she's here full-time in D.C., and so she works with him all the time. But the difficulty is is still huge. It's huge, you know, because um, captors who take our citizens or countries who choose to unjustly detain them do it for a reason. I mean, they want leverage, you know, and be it money, be it political issues, they want leverage. So it is not easy. It is still very difficult. And that's why I feel we need as a country to make it a priority um, because it requires diplomacy. It requires the best of our intelligence working together. It, it requires third-party experts working hand-in-hand -hand with our government and the families. It's a complex um, situation. It's not easy. It's not. And we have plenty of work ahead of us. Great question, though. Any other? Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to ask this because I wanted the students to understand also what you went through, and I hope you're okay with answering this. But when Jim was killed, mm -hmm. you didn't even know from the government, right? Can you just briefly talk about sure. that? That how did you hear about? Oh yeah, I mean there was so much share of that. With them? because I think yeah. it's important sure. for them to sure, understand. Sure, sure. I mean there are just so many things that I could share, but thank you, Gemma. Absolutely. No, I mean an example of how detached our government was from, or our people that supposedly were working with us is that the day um, I was just working at home the day she, uh, we found out about Jim's murder, and I found out from a hysterical journalist. Who called me up on the phone and she was just sobbing. Why? I didn't even know who she was. And she says, Have you looked at Twitter? I said, No, you know. And she says, and then she was just crying and crying. And finally I hung up and went to Twitter, and that's where I saw the posting of Jim's murder. And um, you know, we immediately, you know, I reached out to FBI, to the White House, I reached out, nobody got back to me. And the only way it was confirmed was when President Obama went on TV that night to say that, in fact, Jim had been killed. But our country didn't do that. You know, I mean, even the British, whose citizens um, had the same fate, at least at that point, had a fusion cell that worked really closely with the family. And so with anything anything was coming up or they knew of anything, they always alerted the family so the family could be to know what was happening. And that just wasn't any part of our experience at all. Now, with the fusion cell, um, families um, get a heads up. We may not always know what it's going to be, but they always let us know that something's coming. And Like when al-Baghdadi was, was killed, um, the night before, they, they had us all on the phone together to let us know something big 
was going to be announced. That wasn't too helpful, but it still gave us an idea that something was coming. And so they've tried to be there for us. So, so, but yeah, I mean, so there has been improvement. There has. And I'm just so grateful to so many good Americans who care and really try to execute the new the new presidential policy director. But even that, you know, President Trump could have chosen to just do away with it. You know, it's not it's not legislated. And so that's another challenge we have. It's, um, the Levinson family has put forth the Levinson Act, which Margot is working very hard on. We are collaboratively with many people to put some of this interagency um, work to bring Americans home into law, into the legislature. Right now it's... Um, it's just a directive that any incoming president could do away with and say, no, we don't need that, or we don't need that on board. How about some more questions? Anyone in the back? Anyone have anything? Yes, sir. I think this is a question. Um, you know, someone's in a critical situation, it's a very complicated situation. Um, does your foundation has any objective to change U.S. policy, or well, we want the, our hope is that the policy always considers our citizens in it. Like an example of, like for instance, um, some of the laws that have come out about against material support for terrorists, for example, bless you, is that, for instance, that law, um, so now when an American citizen gets taken by a terrorist group, Getting him back is is much more complicated. I mean, our so I mean, like our government always negotiates with criminal, um, you know, kidnappings domestically or in, in uh, Mexico. We have funds that do that. That's part of what FBI is expert at. So that happens all the time, you know. So, but for example, when groups are designated as terrorist groups, then hands off. We can't negotiate with them, you know, and um, certainly can't pay ransom. And so that complicates it. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. I mean, I think there's something to be said for we don't want to fund terrorism. That's where it gets complicated, okay? But I guess my feeling is, but we must negotiate. That if we don't engage with people who take our citizens, there's just no hope for them at all. And that's where I think policy needs to have reflect that nuance or have that ability to be more flexible when it involves our citizens. So yes, we're very interested in policy and how it, the policy relates to the kidnapping and return of our citizens, yes. yes sir. Um, so at the beginning, Ty spoke about moral courage as in U.S. policy, whether that be enhanced interrogation techniques or um, ways that we um, react to terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so did al-Baghdadi's death, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, did it provide you and your family some sense of justice? And do you think that it was important that we had an actual raid, or would you have had a different perspective if it was done by a drone strike? Can you speak to that, please? Sure. No, I, I think, yeah, well, like I'll never forget when Jihadi John was killed and I was 
you know, people thought I would be so overjoyed. I mean, I, I think, you know, the best thing is when um, people who do such atrocious crimes can be um, taken into custody and tried. Because I don't think that we should stoop to the way they're, um, they're dealing with us in the world. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think that's what we got to be careful about, how we, you know, what is just, you know, what is moral, you know. I don't think the blowing up of a person um, certainly didn't give me any solace, you know. I would have much preferred him to be captured and put on trial and get information about, from him about, at that point we didn't even know where Al Baghdadi was. Um, and for him to spend the rest of his life contemplating what crimes he's committed. I mean, a lot of these jihadists, for them, are, they, their hope would be to be blown up. And that's why al-Baghdadi blew himself up, you know, because so with him went a lot of his knowledge, a lot of intelligence, you know. He probably knew where the remains are of the Americans and the others, you see. So... Um, but never mind a, a lot of the inner workings of ISIS. So, but that's my personal feeling. But that's where as a country we've got to look at how we, like it, I'm sure most of you um, saw that New York Times article that came out early in the week about the CIA intent, um, torture, um, what did they call it? CIA enhanced interrogation. Yes, thank you. That's why Jim was tortured. Jim was, any of you who've read that article, that is why Jim was tortured like that. That's why Jim and the other Americans were waterboarded. That's why they made them wear the orange suits and were all those same enhanced interrogation things we used on our own citizens. Because, you know, what? if we do that to others, we got to expect that they're going to hate us for it. I mean, it's, it's I don't know. To me, it's, it, it should be and it, what it ends up doing is causing incredible hatred of us. So I think it ends up coming back to us. So that's why I think it, it's vital that uh, as American leaders and as we go out in the world that, that, this, that we have some moral compass about this all. And, but that's, that's my opinion. But I feel that... Jim was killed, and the others, because, you know, they were just trying to get back to us, tit for tat, kind of thing. You know, you're going to treat our, you know, people like that, well then, you know, you deserve the same. Kind of thing. And, you know, it just, uh, yeah. So I don't have a question, but I have a comment. And sure. I'm sure, if I can speak for everyone in the room, that uh, uh, moral courage, I mean, you know, for you to get up and speak about this, I really respect that kind of people being able to discuss this publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I, I admire, you know, mm -hmm. what you and your family have done. And uh, so I just want to thank you. Thank you. Sweetie. But you know, when something like this happens, it's funny. It's Jim challenges me. Now he's teaching me. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you.